Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Oops. I don't know how many uh, uh, saw, I know a number of people heard, <clears throat> just at 4.30 as the group there was, uh, was just ending, <clears throat> and I was walking up, uh, just this, this amazing hailstorm. <clears throat> Did you hear it? <laughs> and I just kept on thinking, hail, hail, the gang's all here. <clears throat> And it's like both the gangs all here. So here we are for, for the last evening together in this larger group. I wanted to uh, talk about something that could be relevant to those leaving the intensive practice and, and those continuing. <clears throat> so... Um, I hope I do that. I wanted to start off with the, the teaching that hooked me on Buddha Dharma that is relevant to the topic <clears throat> that I'm sure a number of people are familiar with. His teaching to the Kalamas who say, all of these teachers come through saying that they have the truth, and now you come in saying you have the truth. Who should we believe? It's confusing. It's, it gives rise to doubt in the mind. And he says, um, It is fitting, Kalamas, to be uncertain. It is fitting to doubt. For in situations of uncertainty, doubts surely arise. You should decide, Kalamas, not by what you have heard, not by following convention, not by assuming it is so, not by relying on the texts, not because of reasoning, not because of logic, not by thinking about explanations, not by acquiescing to the views that you prefer, not because it appears likely, and certainly not out of respect for the teacher. When you would know, Kalamas, for yourselves, that these things are unhealthy, these things, when entered upon and undertaken, inclined toward harm and suffering, then, Kalamas, you should reject them. And when you know, Kalamas, for yourselves, that these things are healthy, these things, when entered upon and undertaken, inclined toward welfare and happiness, then Kalamas, having come to them, you should stay with them. That hooked me. There was nowhere to go with refuting that kind of a statement no matter how complicated the, the teaching or what rang true or didn't rang true, ring true, it was a, it's an open invitation to come and see for yourself. You know, in the, the chants, ehi pasiko, come and see for yourself. Who, who do you listen to? You know, you, there are five of us up here and go to interviews, and sometimes it's, it's occurred to me, you know, that uh, if you'd bring one, one situation and then go to five interviews in a row, you might get five different takes on things. <clears throat> and it's not that anyone has the real answer. You know, sometimes when a question would be in the morning and, and somebody would ask a question, and I'd say, oh, yeah. And then somebody else would come out with an answer completely uh, on, a, on a different tack that also addressed it. 
oh yeah, you know, I wouldn't, wouldn't feel appropriate or even correct to say, like, give me that microphone, wait a second. <laughs> and it's, it's a really great lesson for me again and again to see how many different perspectives there are in getting to the truth of things for yourself. So who do you listen to? Do you listen to your thoughts? That's a tricky one, isn't it? Thoughts can be so seductive and convincing. And I'm sure we all know how easy it is to get caught in our thoughts about things, our views about things, identify with them and, and take them to be real, our take on reality, then, then we see soon after is completely different than what we assumed. And there is this um, phenomenon in the, in the teachings that's described as uh, papancha, which means proliferation of thought, how thoughts give rise to other thoughts, give rise to other thoughts, and we create world systems and realities out of one little blip that comes through the mind. It's kind of like a, a grain of sand and there's a, a pearl that gets congealed around it. <clears throat> so tricky, you know, you might be doing, hearing the loving-kindness meditation, somebody is saying, you know, open your heart and send love to, to yourself or to somebody else, you know, and you're just sitting there saying, I do not have any loving-kindness in my heart. And then the thought, I've never had any loving-kindness in my heart. And then the thought, it's because when I was young, I didn't get the love that I needed, and now I'm incapable of, you know, and just on and on, you know. Or somebody who's kind of caught your eye, Vipassana romance, the, the big VR, you know. Oh, did she look at me? Oh, what do you think? just kind of trip out for the next three hours, or two eyes meet two other eyes, and, you know, what do they think of me? And gone and gone. You know how that, that is? That papancha, just one leading to another, mushrooms. Mm -mm. I remember once when I, when I was, I don't think I taught, uh, mentioned it in this, in this uh, retreat, when I was uh, entering uh, high school, and I mentioned about the, uh, the chem quiz, I see that here. First time I, I was starting this high school, this uh, pretty rigorous high school in, in New York that you take a, a special exam to get into. And, uh, and after, I was there with all my friends, but uh, after a couple of weeks, there was a surprise quiz that um, the normal curve, there were 10 questions, and the normal curve was, was four out of 10, four, 40. And I got a 20, and I'd never failed a test before in my life. And that night, in the, in the confines of my bed and the recesses of my mind, I had ended up in the Bowery as a wino, and just, you know, I was, my life was finished. I was going to be thrown out of school. I was, you know, my academic, let alone functioning, career was, was over, I was gone. That's where my mind took me. So how do you know what thoughts to believe? And I, I thought as part of, this, uh, uh, part of this talk, I give a little bit of uh, the Buddha's words on dealing with confusing thoughts before we go into how can, what do we believe. This is the discourse on... Uh, the removal of distracting thoughts, the Vitaka Santana Sutta from the Majjhima Nikaya. You know, and obviously, working mindfully with thoughts and seeing their emptiness is the first strategy. But it's not always strong enough to see them clearly. So these are the Buddha's different suggestions, different interviews. Here, a practitioner is giving attention, when giving attention to some sign and there arise 
in that person unwholesome thoughts connected with desire or hatred or delusion, then they should give attention to some other kinds of thoughts connected with what is wholesome. And giving attention to what is wholesome, then the unwholesome thoughts connected with desire, hate, and delusion are abandoned and, dis- and subside. And then the mind becomes steady, quieted, internally, brought to singleness and concentrated. And then there's an image he gives with all of these. Just as a skilled carpenter or apprentice might knock out, remove, and extract a coarse peg by means of a fine one, so too, when giving attention to some thought connected with what is wholesome, the mind becomes steadied, quieted, brought to singleness, and concentrated. So he's saying here, when the mindfulness doesn't work, Focus on what is wholesome as a substitute to what is unwholesome. Like, for instance, if the doubt is strong, if you can't just be mindful of doubt, then to focus on something that induces faith. You know, reflecting on the Buddha or refuge in the Dharma or somebody else inspiring, like I mentioned the other day. If there's a lot of anger or contraction, doing some loving-kindness can be very skillful antidote to that. If you are captivated, lost in desire, reflecting on impermanence is an antidote. You know, topple forward five months or six months and, and see what it is that you want so much and is it going to have the same kind of sway over you. So this is his first advice if the mindfulness isn't strong. But he realizes that might not be the best interview answer. Maybe that won't work. If, while giving attention to something, to some thought connected with what is wholesome, there still arise unwholesome thoughts connected with desire, hate, and delusion, then one should examine the danger in those thoughts. Thus, these thoughts are unwholesome and they result in suffering. And when examining the danger in those thoughts, then the unwholesome thoughts are abandoned and subside. Just as a man or a woman, young and youthful, and fond of ornaments, would be horrified, humiliated, and disgusted if the carcass of a snake or a dog or a human being were hung around his or her neck, (laughs) He wanted to drive the point home. So too, when one examines the danger in those thoughts, the mind becomes steadied, internally quieted, brought to singleness and concentrated. Basically, he's saying, as is in our colloquial uh, or our vernacular, the phrase, don't even go there. (laughs) Don't go there. And it's, it's a very useful tool, too. As you see this train coming on, you say, if you can get some space around it, do I want to jump on this train? That's where it's really helpful to name the train as it comes through. You know, oh, relationship thoughts, or work thoughts, or, you know, for me on one retreat, I've told this story as a... Uh, knowing the the football schedule on a six-week retreat and every week as it came from Friday to Saturday to Sunday and then three hours on Sunday, you know, they're in Atlanta now. (laughs) And it would take me a day to, to, to recover. By the second week, I made the mistake of looking at the schedule before I started the retreat. Uh, and by, by the second week, I said, this is, this is going to drive me crazy. So I just note, as Friday, the energy started coming up in my biorhythm, you know. You know football thoughts, football thoughts, you know, football thoughts. It worked, you know. <clears throat> Still, there were a few hours on Sunday where I went through my thing. But somehow, holding them in that way, and there's a little bit of space before you dive in. Okay. But maybe interview number two wouldn't quite do the trick. So he goes on. 
if while examining the danger in those thoughts, there still arise unwholesome thoughts, etc., etc., one should try to forget those thoughts and not give attention to them. This is what I was talking about the other day, you know, forgetfulness and inattention. When forgetting those thoughts and not giving attention to them, those, the unwholesome thoughts are abandoned and subside. And this is his example. Just as a person with good eyes who did not want to see forms that had come within range of sight would either shut their eyes or look away, so too one tries to forget those thoughts and does not give attention to them and the mind becomes quieted, etc., etc. And as I explained the other day, this is turning your attention away from what is troublesome onto something else, which is, there's a, a slight difference between the first technique and this one, in that the first one is a conscious substituting of a particular reflection. This is just turning your attention to something else in your experience, like sounds or sensations in the body or space around. Okay, interview number three might not work. So on to the fourth. If while trying to forget those thoughts and not giving attention to him, to them, there still arise these troublesome thoughts, one should give attention to stilling the thought formation of those thoughts. And this is his example. Just as a person walking fast might consider, why am I walking fast? What if I walk slowly and would walk slowly? Then they might consider, why am I walking slowly? What if I stand? And then they might say, why am I standing? What if I sit? And then they would sit and might consider, why am I sitting? What if I lie down? <laughs> Sounds like a pretty good uh, interview, huh? And, and they would lie down. By doing so, they would substitute for each grosser posture one that was subtler. So, stilling the thought formations. And one can take this in two ways. As in the example, one way to still the thought formations in uh, explanations that I've read is to just relax, you know, not get so wound up, and just, just take it easy. Which is very useful advice when you find that the walls are closing in on you. Or another way to relate to stilling the thought formations is um, to see their source, to see what's underneath them. For instance, if you have this theme coming up over and over, to drop down one level and get in touch with the feeling underneath it. And that is getting to one aspect of the source of those thoughts. Or you can go even deeper and, and just see, explore where do thoughts come from. You know, not that you'll find an answer, but that, uh, what was it, the germinal seed of, what was the expression? The uh, inner germinal center. The inner germinal, germinal center. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I used to, the first few years of practice. I would go to every teacher and say, "Where did thoughts come from?" You know, nobody ever gave me an answer. Oh, that's where they come from. They come from the the mystery, from the ground of being that everything comes from, and somehow returning to that place is also a way to still these thought formations. It's another explanation that I've I've heard of this. And then the fifth interview <clears throat> for certain temperaments. If while giving attention to stilling the thought formations of those thoughts, there still arise troublesome thoughts, then with teeth clenched and tongue pressed against the roof of the mouth, one should beat down, constrain, and crush mind with mind. <laughs> That's what it says. You want to be careful how much you see that, that teacher in interviews. Uh, uh. And here's the example. Just as a strong 
person, a strong man, might seize a weaker man by the head or shoulders <laughs> and beat them down, constrain them and crush them, so too with teeth clenched and tongue pressed against the roof of the mouth, one beats down, constrains and crushes mind with mind, and the mind becomes steadied internally, <laughs> quieted, brought to singleness and concentrated. Now, with this last one, I, I, I say the caveat <laughs> that I think what, he, what I get from this <laughs> is he's saying a very firm no. But uh, because he was of the warrior caste, you know, Buddha. But from everything that I've seen, that no, and it can be a very firm no, has to be done without aversion, but with a compassion and an understanding and a clarity. Just like a mother would say to a child about to touch the stove, no, or get the point across with a, a certain kind of fierce compassion, no, that's not right. In that same way, sometimes, and I, I would suspect that, that many, if not all of you, know what it's like to just say, enough, okay? Not now, and then turn away. It doesn't always work, and you've got to be very um, judicious with that. But just to see, there's lots of different ways to work with troublesome thoughts. So... What I get from this, what's the teaching? There's no one right way or formula, is there? Am I doing it right? It's just another thought, thinking. And a lot of the, the teachings, you can corroborate a point of view somewhere in the scriptures, whether it's in the Pali Canon or great Buddhist masters, you know, there's uh, uh, Lady Sayadaw, or uh, I think this might have been the Buddha's words too, I think I mentioned it, practice like your hair is on fire. You know? And then there's Buddha Dasa who says, nothing to do, nothing to be, nothing to have. You know? Two great masters. Jack uh, Cornfield put together this wonderful book, Living Buddhist Masters, or what's now called Living Dharma because most of them have gone. Uh, doesn't have the same ring, dead Buddhist masters, so, I guess. But it's now called <laughs> Live, Living Dharma. And it's 12 different teachers and different approaches to doing Vipassana meditation. And you read one, and they talk with such certitude, saying, yeah, that's it. And then you read somebody else, completely different practice. Who's got the right one? They were all Buddhist masters. Ajahn Chah, who's one of those masters, would say, you know, when it seemed to contradict himself, and he'd say, hey, you just said something else, somebody would ask him, you just said something very different to the person before, before who came to see you. And he said, well, you know, it's a road that I, that I know well, and if I see somebody going over to a ditch on the right, I'll say, go left, go left. And then someone else might be toppling off to the, to the left, and I'll say, go right, go right. Different times, there's, there's different answers. One of the, the wonderful things about being part of this teaching community, not just uh, the five of us, but the 16 or 17 of us, uh, is that there's so many different ways to express the Dharma. And I, I hope that that's one of the, the things that you would get from hearing all these different talks. You know, there's no one right way. And it's very freeing. So, who do you turn to? Who do you trust? Remember that old TV show, Who Do You Trust? If not the words outside or the thoughts inside. And I do want to say, by the way, that when you're working with somebody that you do have a sense of trust, it's good to 
just consider the, the suggestions because there's something about surrendering and just exploring to a new way of looking before you decide, no, I don't think so. But ultimately, you have to go inside. Just like the Buddha said, when you know for yourselves, not by any teacher's authority or um, uh, reputation, the Buddha's last words, I think Sylvia had mentioned this, Therefore, Ananda, be lamps unto yourself, until you, unto yourselves. Be a refuge to yourselves. Betake yourselves to no external refuge. Hold fast to the truth as a lamp. Hold fast to the truth as a refuge. Look not for a refuge in anyone beside yourselves. And those who do this, it is they who shall reach the very topmost height. So, what does that mean? If our mind is so tricky, how can we get in touch with the place that we can trust? You know, when I first heard this and, and I thought, oh, I guess I'm supposed to trust myself, it kind of frightened me because I didn't trust myself. And sometimes, you know, I still don't trust myself. I didn't trust myself to uh, have the commitment or to have the wisdom or to, to whatever it was that I was doubting or am doubting in there. But instead of trusting in ourselves, in our minds, in our thoughts, in the views that we prefer, we can trust in the awareness that meets the moment. Because that awareness, which is not figuring things out, is born out of a deeper place. We're trusting Just like when we take refuge in the Buddha, we are taking refuge in that place, not in our thinking mind, but a deeper place that knows. Ajahn Sumedho has a a beautiful uh, expression for this. He calls it your Buddha knowing. Now, your Buddha knowing, my Buddha knowing is different than my James knowing. As soon as I get into Oh, I know. I know the score. That's a different place than this deeper connection. So, you listen to yourself usually anyway. You might as well listen with real skill and real care to the the deeper places of wisdom and clarity and understanding. Now, I want to talk a little bit about about this Buddha knowing. There's a a line in the the Third Zen Patriarch, it says, Stop talking and thinking, and there's nothing you'll not be able to know. It's a great line. There's a different quality when you have a new understanding about things. When there's that insight that comes, you know that feeling of, aha, oh, wow. If things turn out the way you thought they would, all you end up doing is patting yourself on the back saying, pretty clever, I knew it all along. But in order to have an experience of, aha, oh, look at that, there's this element of, of surprise, of openness, where the truth is revealed and can be met with that non-fabricated conceptual thought, just the pure awareness that meets it. And it's different 
than analyzing and thinking. It's allowing the wisdom to emerge. And what that is required is for us to see through the beliefs that we might have that we're not imposing, that we're imposing on reality that don't have to do with the truth. One of my, my main practices in recent years when I'm feeling a, a, a kind of confusion or a, a tightness or some, some way that there's not an ease or an openness is just um, asking myself, what thought am I believing right now? And when I remember to, to say that, and look, where is it? It's kind of like that going to the thought formation. Oh, this is where the, the little knot is. And just see what it's like to understand, realize the, the emptiness of that thought. There's open space and possibilities. And then we can get in touch with what really wants to emerge. This is from, uh, I read this about Michelangelo. <clears throat> Michelangelo, when uh, someone lavished praise on him for his skill in creating the beautiful masterpiece David, he brushed aside the compliment by saying, The man was already in the stone. I merely removed all the pieces of rock that kept him from being seen. So this is really about seeing that beautiful masterpiece that sometimes gets obscured. Seeing your Buddha nature or your Buddha knowing. I, uh, I read the, the passage, it was the very first night of this, uh, this month, retreat. I'll just read it again. From Wang Po. Your true nature is something never lost to you, even in moments of delusion nor is it gained at the moment of enlightenment. It is the nature of the suchness. This pure mind, the source of everything, shines forever and on all with the brilliance of its own perfection. But the people of the world do not awake to it, regarding only that which sees, hears, feels, and knows as mind, blinded by their own sight, hearing, feeling, and knowing, they do not perceive the spiritual brilliance of the source. If they would only eliminate all conceptual thought in a flash, that source would manifest itself like the sun ascending through the void, and illuminating the whole universe without hindrance or bounds. It's right there inside, isn't it? Do you know when you are in touch with it? What does it feel like when you get in touch with that perfection, that brilliant source? What does it feel like? Actually, I'll read uh, along the same lines. I just came across this poem. This is by our yoga teacher, Dana, who besides being a really great teacher is also a beautiful poet or poetess. The peace of God is present in the tumult and the temple. A single thought can move us from the unreal to the real, to dance or kneel, to sing or speak a prayer of gratitude and praise 
can spark the flame of truth again. To remember and forget, to find and lose, to remember and forget again, there's no shame in this. To recall the grace that is our nature brings down the wall that separates and draws the gaze inside once more. There, the open door of the heart glows like a beacon in the night. There, we rest in stillness and in light. So, how do we get in touch with that beacon? I think it starts with the intention, as it usually does, doesn't it? Having that intention to go for the truth. Our uh, clear comprehension of purpose is one way that it's talked about in the teachings. When we are clear what really matters to us and inclines our mind to the truth, to just go for the truth, then that holds all the times we forget and all the times we get lost, coming back again and again to what really matters. And one way that that intention manifests is by cultivating mindfulness. What mindfulness does is it gets us out of our conceptual thinking to see what's really here. What is really going on? Oh, I'm sitting, I'm alive, breathing, hearing, sensations. That's what's happening. And in that moment where there's true mindfulness, even knowing, oh, confusion is happening. We're not caught up again in the stories and can access that truth directly. Because it is getting in touch with the truth of this moment. So that's, that's the doorway to this deeper wisdom. And then going deeper still, there's a quality that's, that gets developed as we do this practice more and more that's even beyond just knowing that there's an in-breath or an out-breath. What we're developing, one way that I relate to mindfulness is that quality of learning to listen with greater and greater care. And sometimes it gets very, very subtle to listen to the movement of the mind or the movement of the heart or to listen and hear that wisdom as it uh, manifests. And one aspect of this listening as we talk to ourselves, you know, we're talking to ourselves most of the time, is listening to the tone that the conversation is happening in. It's a very useful tool. Listening to the tone of the thoughts, you know, the ones that come through with that kind of jagged edge or harsh tone or frightened tone or grasping tone. You really need this. You know. Come on, get it together, man. Those thoughts come through a lot, don't they? That's a very different energy than the thoughts that come through. This feels right. This doesn't feel right. And we can feel the the kindness and the strength and the clarity and the courage that has that connection. This is one of the main aspects of practice that I, that I work with, both in my, uh, on the cushion, in an intensive retreat, or at home, too. Just if I'm kind of confused, just listening to the tone. 
because there's something in there that that is the clue Kuan Yin or the Buddha aren't speaking in harsh, critical tones. You know? They are not trying to scold you or uh, put you down. So that's one way that this deep listening uh, can happen. Another way is, is listening and feeling the body, just listening to what the body is saying. You know, your body doesn't lie. And if there's a contraction and, a, and a, an agitation as the message is coming through, that's very different from a sense of, of connection and strength and ease and openness. And as you can start to discriminate between those different messages, whether the tone or the, the body messages that, as the voices are coming, you can choose which thoughts to let go, to not believe. As uh, one teacher, Michelle McDonald, she had it in her practice when, when she, uh, she'd catch herself about to get lost in the thought that didn't ring true, she'd say, I don't believe you. I don't believe you. And you can let them go. That's very different from the ones that come from that deeper, wise place. Ah, this feels right. Let's give energy. Let's manifest this, uh, this thought into word or, or action, whatever is appropriate. So that's, that's another one. Listening carefully. Being mindful, listening carefully. When there's a wholesome quality to it, something else that makes it even stronger is if there's an impulse that's called to act, to act on it. Because as those thoughts give rise to words or actions, the karmic development is even stronger. And the likelihood of cultivating um, those responses becomes more and more a connection to, to your heart. And besides which, you can feel the wholesomeness as you're expressing. So expressing those wise thoughts well when they emerge. As far as action, I just want to put in, particularly for people who, who are leaving the retreat now, you know, you might have different kinds of thoughts that seem right on, seem true, and one container that holds your actions and speech, speech is sila, is having a, an ethical conduct so that you see, oh, if this is going to cause harm to myself or to others, there's something to to take a look at. And when you've got that commitment to sila, it's like a protection to not act impulsively on what seems like your, your inner voice, but to, uh, to just use that as discrimination. Something else that, um, that gets confusing in life is when we have to make decisions. Okay. What voice to listen to then? And probably as the people who are leaving tomorrow uh, will know, you know, oh my goodness, I've been learning to let go these last weeks and months, and now I've got to you know, decide you know, what to have for lunch. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Instead of just what was served on the table, you know, it makes it... That's one of the great things about this environment. You don't have to decide much of anything. Bell rings, oh, I'm supposed to sit, okay? <coughs> lunch comes, okay, here's lunch. You know, it's all structured. And at the beginning, it seems like there's a kind of confining and resistance, natural resistance to that schedule. But actually, as the days go, go on, there's a real freedom in that. Oh, I don't have to figure anything out. Great. I know what to do. Just be here. Okay. But when we have to make decisions, it gets a little bit more complicated, especially when there are decisions that, that affect our lives deeply. And again, there's no one right answer. In the Tao, uh, there's this line that, that I 
that I love. It goes something like, I think I have it right, he who stops or knows when to stop will not meet danger. So there are times where there's a restraint that's called for. But you don't want to be just stuck in stopping and not engaging in life. So uh, I share with you some other advice that's appropriate at other times. At one point, uh, did I I mention about Reverend Miller here, the psychic? I I, I was at a crossroads in my life, and um, I didn't know whether to go up to uh, the center in, uh, at Barry or be on staff or continue uh, teaching school in New York City or go travel to Asia um, or move out to California. And they all seemed like viable options. And I went to this guy, Reverend Miller, who I had seen before, really wise, wise man. And this is in Denver, Colorado. Each summer I go out to Naropa. And... Um, it was five dollars for a psychic reading. That was the, and he'd, he'd spend like an hour with you. You know, he wasn't in it for the money. Right? And uh, I said to him, "Well, I've got all these choices. You know, um, what, what should I do?" And he said, um, "Well, I won't tell you what to do." I was kind of a little disappointed. Oh, he said, "But I will tell you one thing. It doesn't matter." Yeah. And I said, it doesn't matter. What do you mean? That's my life you're talking about. Right? And he said, uh, he believed in spirit guides and stuff like that, you know, being a psychic. And, uh, and he said, if you're, if you're stuck and frozen in indecision, then you're just going to be paralyzed there. But once you put yourself in motion in the first step that you feel appropriate, particularly if you have to take a step, then once you take that first step, it leads to the next, it leads to the next, and you can see the, the forces, he talked about, the forces that, that guide you can, can help you along and maneuver, and you can also be there dancing with them, and you can see if this, if this isn't appropriate, oh, okay, no, I think then we need to go here, we need to go there. So it doesn't matter. You're going to be guided one way or another. But don't be frozen in fear. Just take the first step. Now, if you don't have a pressure on yourself to take the step, I always find it helpful to first keep on listening until it becomes clear. Because sooner or later, all the good decisions that you've made in your life, if you look back on them, probably there was a point, at least this is true for me, where it just became obvious. Oh. Yeah, this is the next thing. Right? So you don't have to think your way through. It's more a matter of listening and being patient for it. But if you've got to do something, take the next step and just see where it leads. So it really means being um, honest and listening carefully to yourself. But it can be tricky. I just want to put a, a, a caveat here. You know, even when it seems like it's like it's right on, there things can change, and the mind is is very very subtle. I remember um, on one retreat, uh, I was I was given the instruction. Um, it's getting very essencey and. And uh, Joseph said, see if you can notice how any sense of self is being created. That'll be your practice. And I got really excited. Wow, okay. It was really sweet. And I was on this, doing this walking uh, meditation down in in the lower, down by the, actually by the bowling alley. There's one lane in the Massachusetts center where... It's a favorite walking space because it's really good wood as you walk. It's, a, it's actually a bowling lane that was there before the center uh, was taken over. They still have the, I think they still have the pins up. Do they have the pins? Yeah. Anyway, I was, um, maybe not, but I was just walking, really getting into it. Really, oh, a sense of self? No, no sense of self. Okay. And this guy comes walking in, this kind of uh, bull in a china shop kind of yogi, right, who was kind of clomping through, and he, was, he had this big book, and he was writing down 
some people were doing uh, Upandita style, where you write down your, your meditations and report on your clear experiences, right? And he had this big book, and as he's walking and he's, and he's writing, you know, his whatever he's writing and clomping through, and I'm just going so softly, and it occurs to me, well, I certainly have a lot less sense of self than he does. <laughs> <laughs> It's very, very tricky, you know. Yeah. So you got to keep on listening and wait and listen and wait to say, yeah, this feels right. Listen to that tone. So trusting in your Buddha knowing that ahipasako, come and see for yourself. Now, that's why the Buddha taught. He didn't just teach, you know, to get students. He didn't need any students. He didn't even want to teach at the beginning until he was, he was pleaded with by one of the devas. And he took a look and he said, oh yeah, there are many people with but a little dust covering their eyes. Yes, they too can see what I see and understand what I know. So the job of a spiritual friend or a teacher is, besides the guidance, and besides sharing their own inspiration and love of the Dharma, is to point back to the practitioner their own wisdom. That's where the Buddha is. And it can be a little bit um, confusing if you think the wisdom is outside. Oh, that person is, is so wise. Or, wow, the person who wrote this book. Or, Oh, this tape, they've got so much wisdom. Well, what's happening is it touches a place inside of you that says, yep, that's right. So where's the wisdom? It's, it's waiting to be remembered, not to think that it's out there. And it takes courage to look that deeply because with it, you're also going to see all the confusion and the pain and the fear and the suffering. But you can't just say, oh, let's get the wisdom, you know, let's get the, the love, let's keep the rest of that stuff down there. That's not how it works. It really means opening up to the whole show so you can let that deeper understanding hold it all. That's what's underneath it all. Underneath that confusion and fear lies the kingdom of God or your Buddha nature or your Buddha knowing. And once you get connected with it, as I think most everyone here has, I think everyone here has, I know everyone here has, no one can take it away from you. You can't pretend you don't know once you've seen. You might forget and remember and forget and remember, but nobody can take it away from you. And it's so compelling that we keep on needing to go back there so we can live from that place. That's what being a lamp unto ourselves is all about. We don't have to trust in our thoughts or in our, in our perspectives, but in the awareness and the truth itself. And then it's something miraculous that we can share. So I, I close with this reading from Shantideva, my favorite. As a blind person feels when they find a pearl in a dustbin, so am I amazed by the miracle of awakening rising in my consciousness. It is the nectar of immortality that delivers us from death, the treasure that lifts us above poverty into the wealth of giving to life, the tree that gives shade to us when we roam about scorched by life, the bridge 
that takes us across the stormy river of life. The cool moon of compassion that calms our mind when it is agitated. The sun that dispels darkness. The butter made from the milk of kindness by churning it with the Dharma. It is a feast of joy to which all are invited. So let's sit. because I told them earlier when we met that uh, I won't be here in the morning. So now I tell all the rest of you, I will not be here in the morning tomorrow because my daughter Elizabeth is having a baby tomorrow. So um, I'll be there with her. So I want to say to you what a great pleasure and honor um, it is really to have been here with you and to do this work together with all of you. And uh, I thank you very much for your practice. Um, a number of people over the past week or so uh, have said to me, um, people that I either spoke to who weren't here, or my colleagues with whom I have been, or uh, the folks who are coming in to teach the second half of the retreat, have said to me, how was it? And what, what was the best thing about it? Um, and I said, this is a wonderful experience for my own faith because it's eternally exciting for me to really uh, watch how it's absolutely true that the process just takes care of itself, the heart heals itself, give it this space and this attention in, an, in a context that holds it and the work gets done all by itself. So it's uh, been... Uh, uh, a wonderful uh, experience of um, buoying up my own faith um, and inspiring me to practice in my own life. So thank you very much for that. And uh, for those of you who are going home, may your travels be safe and without incident, and may you arrive home in safety and in health and happily and in joy to wherever it is that you're going, and may you return again safely and enjoy and with inspiration. And for those of you who are staying, may this be a month of uh, blessed awakening. I wish you all every good thing. Thank you. And I will be happy to know tomorrow morning um, that you are thinking of Elizabeth and her new baby be wonderful to tell her that there are 50 or 60 people out there praying for her. So I hope you'll do that. Thank you very much.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.